Welcome to Tradewinds, the mindfulness and nature podcast with Chloe and Joe from Kodharma.org. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing with you an interview I recently conducted with Erin McMorrow. Erin is a certified yoga teacher, craniosacral therapist, entrepreneur, and author. Early next year, she's releasing her first book, Grounded, a fierce feminine guide to connecting with the soil and healing from the ground up. Our interview will give you a taste of the wonderful things you will find in that book on soil health and on the divine feminine metaphor of nature's cycles. Now, I'll let her tell you her story. Hey, Erin, welcome to our podcast. I'm really, really excited that you're here today. Um, everything that we talked about and the some of the stuff that you're writing and is going to be in your book, Grounded, which is coming out next year. And the Getting Grounded program that you started and just really a lot of the sort of philosophies that you have are really fascinating to me. And I'm, I think it's a really unique and cool perspective that has a lot of um, overlap, I think, with what Kodharma is doing in terms of really reconnecting to nature as a way to start um, thinking about sustainability and environmentalism. So uh, really, really glad that that you're here with us today. Um, I thought it might make sense to kind of give everyone a little bit of a background, uh, if you could, on sort of what your journey has been to this point um, and what kind of brought you to this this vision for um, Grounded. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And I'm so excited to be here. Um, so if we go all the way back, uh, I'm going to say around my PhD in 2013. So I studied um, urban planning and sustainable cities at the University of Southern California. And I, uh, I was looking at climate change in this sort of short runway that we have and just trying to look at outcomes and see um, what kind of what kind of things that we're doing in the world are effective, <laughs> you know, and, that, and so that I could aim my career in that direction. And so I graduated in 2013 and I was looking for jobs and um, I thought I would probably work in a city or something like that, working on, on this sort of topic. And in the meantime, I started volunteering for this group called Kiss the Ground, um, which at the time was a just we were like 14 volunteers. We were in Venice, California, um, and it was a friend of mine, Ryland, had been um, he worked with the or his family is the Cafe Gratitude family. So if you're not familiar, it's like a, a very popular like, vegan restaurant in California. Um, yeah, royalty. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, um, so he had a very cool job where he got to like travel the world and uh, go to these sustainability conferences and, you know, was very looped into the, um, climate conversation as it related to food, you know, and, um, agriculture and things of this sort. And he had just been to Australia and listened to this fellow named Graham Sate speak about something called soil carbon sequestration. And uh, at the time, none of us knew what that was, but he was he was struck by the notion um, that it was a solution because we were really struggling for solutions that were like time-effective solutions for climate change. And this is, uh, again, 2013, so many years ago. And, um, and so soil carbon sequestration, the idea is that the soil is a natural carbon sink. And when the microscopic life in the soil is alive and functioning properly, it actually helps the plants pull carbon out of the atmosphere down into the soil, both into the plant and the soil. And the plants love carbon and so does the soil. And um, what we've been doing is uh, killing this microscopic life in the soil, mostly um, by means of uh, industrial agriculture, but also different things like deforestation, pretty much anything that destroys plants and the soil 
basically sends carbon back up out into the atmosphere, which of course is the opposite of what we want and is um, mm-hmm. greatly exacerbating climate change. And this is a big sort of silent part of the climate crisis. And and it was amazing to me because I just got a PhD in, in you know urban planning and sustainable cities, and I knew nothing about this. I knew nothing about soil health at all or um, soil carbon sequestration. And I had actually gotten involved with the group because uh, I thought we were doing urban gardening, which we kind of were, <laughs> you know, but, um, but that's what I was drawn to. I was like, great, I'll volunteer for this urban gardening organization in my neighborhood uh, as I go job searching and, and do whatever I do. And this, this story, you know, came in from Australia and Ryland was activated to get this group together to help tell the world this story because we all had the same instinct that was like, this is really important. <laughs> you know, people yeah. need to know this. Um, and so we were all, that's why we had 14 volunteers. We, we were, I think, unpaid volunteers for six months to a year. And that's how passionate people were about this thing. And when I entered, I basically, after, I, I don't know, a month or so, I, I sort of found myself in the middle of it. I ended up being sort of the first director like informal director. And then um, basically it was the stage at which we became, uh, or we started our path onto becoming a 501c3. At the time, we didn't even know if we were going to be a nonprofit or a business or or what we were doing really. Um, And so I was part of that kind of startup phase, birthing birthing phase with this um, tremendous organization. And now they are, they're doing really well. They're a 501c3. And they're very dear friends. And um, if you can look up Kiss the Ground online, um, it's it's a wonderful organization working on the storytelling around um, soil carbon sequestration, as well as actively healing the soil with all different programs and education and such. But that's where I started. And I did that for probably about six months. And then because I was in this sort of startup phase, it was really taxing, honestly, just as a human. <laughs> I know anybody that's worked on a startup, but it's a lot of work. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was, again, I had just graduated. I had like different, uh, different vision for my life. And so I was frustrated because I wasn't finding this sort of dream job, like that wasn't working out. And then, um, you know, in the meantime, I was actually working on my passion, but not fully realizing that's what I was doing. And I also got displaced. So Venice, my town was gentrifying rapidly at that time. So I was a renter and I got displaced out of two homes in a row, right, right as I graduated. So, you know, school was my work. It was my income. It was my like purpose. And, um, and all of that went away with with my house <laughs> like yeah, multiple wow. times. And so, yeah. And so it was quite the, I, I would say that was like a sort of spiritual breakdown moment where I just, I just burnt out. And um, I was so passionate about this subject matter, but I couldn't really go on anymore in that way. And so also other things happened. I, I had a friend pass away suddenly from a fast moving cancer and, um, and she was my age and she had a husband and two kids. And I was at this juncture, this sort of breakdown juncture in my life where I actually really wanted to go to Bali and do yoga teacher training. And it was just something that I sort of wouldn't let myself do because I had just done six years of education and I didn't, I was like, I don't need another, you know, certificate and I really need to get a job, you know, and live somewhere and handle these basic necessities of life. And it just, life just wasn't letting me. And so I was like, you know what, to hell with it. (laughs) Like, um, I had, you know, that, that friend's death was really the moment where I was like, I'm going to do what my soul wants to do right now, you know, because I knew in that moment, uh, 
that if it were me, that if it were, you know, and this happens, I guess, when someone suddenly passes, we reflect quickly on life. And I was like, mm. I would regret not doing this, you know, if I, if I suddenly knew I was going to leave the earth. Um, this is something I really want to do. So I said, let's do it. And so I uh, put all my stuff in storage um, and I left Kiss the Ground and I got on a plane to Bali. And, um, and then on the plane, on the way to Bali, this book started to move through me. So it was, it was basically that I had posed the question to the universe. I, I know that I'm on the right path in some way, but I don't know what this is supposed to look like. You know, I, I, I'm trying everything. I don't know what to do. And as soon as I got on the plane to Bali, it was clear as day. It was like, it's a book. This is a book, like a lightning mm-hmm. strike, you know? And so cool. yeah, and I was like, that makes so much sense. I'm a writer, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, yeah. So yeah, so I, I started the journey still thinking that I was writing like a scientific argument. I was going to do sort of a, an unusual interdisciplinary approach um, to a scientific argument about soil health and climate change. So it was still soil carbon sequestration. And I thought I was going to argue, like make an argument about how much uh, carbon could be pulled down. It was specific numbers and things because the numbers were quite messy. The science was a little earlier on. There's, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about that, but it was sort of problematic. And I wanted to take that project on. And then I also, you know, I got to Bali and I, I did um, this very intense uh, yoga teacher training that was also like an energetic training. Um, I learned craniosacral therapy and I started to learn about energy work in general and healing and the wellness world and um, realized how much I had it, like stuck in my body from six years of academia and everything else in my life and burnout, you know, and, uh, I really hadn't had any perspective on that before. I was very, was pretty tightly wound in school, <laughs> you know? And so I, I started to reflect on all of these things and it was somewhere in there that slowly this, um, divine feminine metaphor started to come through. And at the time, I still didn't know that the soil is the oldest divine feminine metaphor. This hits me like five years later, (laughs) which is really absurd, like so absurd. But I, so I was running around like writing and talking about the divine feminine and the soil, not knowing the connection, which is so funny. The universe is really, you know, she has a sense of humor. Well, it also goes to show, I feel like what we have been programmed to forget collectively like that that it was difficult to even make that what would now feels like an obvious connection right yeah and the whole journey has been that way it has been this unfurling and this unveiling and every moment the thing that I discover is so obvious (laughs) I'm like oh my god you're kidding me like it's been (laughs) six years and I didn't know that but it really is it's deprogramming you know it's a lot of societal deprogramming um and we'll get to that eventually this takes me to the conversation about patriarchy and um and again years later it took me all the way through like it took the me too movement like 2017 I'm still all the way back in 2015 at this moment right so um, I, and I'll, I'll skip, we won't have to go through every year of my life, but I, I went through, um, just a big growth process of, of moving into the, in the wellness field, starting to teach yoga, starting to do energy work, um, came back to LA and just went 
with the book full force. And really the book has been my path in terms of taking me to all of these other places. And now it's, uh, it's its own thing. It's yeah. The, the edits, final edits are in and it does drop in early 2021. And, uh, it has gotten me, uh, all the way into this conversation about, about society and structures. And these are also things that I studied. I mean, I studied institutions, you know? Um, and so it actually all comes all the way back around to like, yeah. Oh, we have climate change because we have all of this terrible programming that is built in because of our society and the way that it's set up and patriarchy and history. And, um, so piecing it, like piecing these, these dots, connecting these dots has been a big part of my, my journey. So cool. And you mentioned, sort of the storytelling aspect of Kiss the Ground. And I think that is a lot of kind of what, to me, Grounded is, is this sort of analysis of the storytelling that has happened throughout history and sort of the storytelling in our own personal narratives day to day and how that kind of affects the environment around us. And uh, it really kind of speaks to me because when I initially studied mindfulness, I did that within the Buddhist context. And in Buddhism, they deal a lot with sort of exploring and understanding the cycles of life and death and this idea of dependent arising and karmic action and hearing kind of, you know, some of this perspective of the work that you've done and the things that you've discovered along the way, you know, it strikes me that these cycles that, you know, Buddhism is describing is really the story that is told time and time again in a lot of different cultures and a lot of different points in history, which is these natural life cycles which mirror you know this the the nature around us so you mentioned carbon and and you know you you educated me on what carbon cycles were and I was like whoa <laughs> so yeah, I love <laughs> I love to hear more kind of about I guess your thoughts both on sort of the relationship we have with nature and and maybe some of the philosophies you've discovered in this you know unveiling of mother earth and this divine feminine metaphor yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the the divine feminine metaphor that was hiding in plain sight um, that I haven't fully explained is essentially, and people laugh when they hear it, but it's like the soil, of course, is is fertile, and there's microscopic life inside the soil uh, that keeps it, like I said, alive. And there's critters, um, and that's healthy soil that grows healthy plants. Um, and so, when we have that live, healthy soil we part the soil and we put a seed in and then we cover the seed and the seed then gestates in the dark. And then uh, after the seed gestates and it's ready, it it starts to make its way and it it, it cracks open, you know, fights for life and then um, fights for light rather. And then comes to life as this plant. And then we have the, the process of sort of the baby plant and then it grows and then it grows into a bigger plant into full expression. And then eventually, um, dies essentially and then goes back into the soil and in a healthy in a healthy relationship with the soil that plant just goes straight back into the soil and decomposes and goes through the death part of its cycle and all all that means is that it transforms you know and so it's Mm -hmm. it's this metaphor of death as transformation um not death as loss forever right and so and so it the whole thing is a cycle and of course the you can see the divine feminine metaphor as like the birth the, the gestation the womb so the soil as the womb essentially and as the 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 darkness that is essential for life so we have been taught primarily in this culture to worship the sun as the source of life, which the sun is a source mm. of life. <laughs> but we, if we had the sun all the time and we had no darkness, we would fry. You know, we can't. It's, it's a balance. Like we need like where would we be without gestation? Where would we be without uh, the darkness? 
And also that sort of waiting period of gestation where life simply cannot be rushed. Like you do not go in and mess with the seed, you know, while it's gestating. That's just not what you do. And it can't be done with babies. It can't be done at all. And so there is this sort of like law of nature part that I love about that, where it's like, this is, um, this is beyond us. You know, this is the miracle of life that is not up to us. And uh, so, yeah, so we have the divine feminine metaphor as that birth gestation part. And then there are multiple layers of metaphors. So the seed metaphor, where the seed cracks open, grows, dies, goes back into the soil to nourish the soil, to nourish new life, um, is mirrored in the, like the moon metaphor. So the cycles mm. of the moon, of course, the waxing and the waning of the moon um, goes all the way around. And the full moon is that sort of release death moment. And then we go all the way back around. And the new moon, which is dark, where you can't see the moon at all, is that, um, you know, that, that beginning birth phase, that darkness, gestation, and then birth phase. And um, that is connected to menstruation. You know, it always has been for all of time, all of humanity. And um, so we're looking at the, cy- the cycles of menstruation, right? Women. And um, all of these are connected and always have been. And this has been woven throughout mythology and storytelling and goddesses for all of human history. And of course, if you imagine like, ancient, um, like pre-patriarchy, all the way ancient, like more than 5,000 years ago, um, People are living with nature and uh, fertility is worshipped because that's, you know, that's the birth of babies. That's the growth of plants, which are food. And of course, if people are moving in those cycles of nature, we have this like, inherent innate relationship with nature as well as with the stars in the sky and the stories that we tell around that, you know, as humans. And um, so again, like th- this stuff didn't show up. I had been writing this book about soil since 2015 or 13, really, but 14, 15, and it didn't show up until, um, you know, a lot of it showed up after post Me Too. Like I hit, I hit a real, like a witchy phase in like the end of, you know, <laughs> Jupiter, Jupiter went into Scorpio. We had Harvey Weinstein. We had the Me Too movement at the end of 2017, like the witches, you know, were just, it was on. And, um, and that's when I learned about a lot of this stuff because it's like, oh, it's this hidden, it's almost, it's like hidden occult stuff, but it's not. It's the most obvious thing in the world. It's right in front of us. It's part of all of human history. It's not hidden at all, but it is in our psyches because it's been mm-hmm. suppressed. It's been so deeply, thoroughly suppressed, um, which is also why we have this crazy blind spot with the soil itself. We're like, nobody knows this. Like very few people know that the soil is in fact alive and that there is, you know, that carbon goes into the soil and that, um, that, that there are little micro, there's microscopic life and, and, you know, fungi and (laughs) whatever else is going on. And that, that's like the forest floor, right? That is fertility. Um, but again, we think of like, the sun and the masculine as fertility and like phallic symbols, you know, which is great also, but not enough. Like it's a balance. And um, I would say our, our culture has lost a lot of that side. And so finally getting into the the carbon cycle, um, if you think of that forest floor and that like that the way decomposition works, like that's, that's compost essentially. So the way that the soil stays healthy and works well is to honor that death part of the cycle. When the plant dies, we put the plant back and there are ways to work with, you know, um, like dry plants, green plants, et cetera, whatever food, food and like food waste, waste isn't even, it shouldn't be a thing. There is no trash that doesn't exist, exist in nature. 
Um, and so compost is like we take the clippings of our food or whatever that is. Those are also plants, you know, and we put them all somewhere and then we handle them as compost. And then that compost turns back into healthy soil and that healthy soil goes goes back into the larger cycle and that then nourishes new life. And as far as carbon is concerned, that keeps the carbon in a healthy carbon cycle. And so what we have instead is that we're primarily through, again, industrial agriculture, you know, pesticides, um, deforestation, all sorts of things. Every time we kill the soil and we kill plants, uh, that carbon goes up into the atmosphere. And then there's a larger carbon cycle, which I knew, I guess, but I never thought of somehow, even studying sustainability, um, sort of basic science. But uh, that, that carbon, we know we have too much in the atmosphere. Um, some people know that we also, that a lot of that ex excess carbon is going, it's being absorbed into the oceans. So the ocean is actually helping us out at the moment by balancing this. Um, but now the oceans are, are getting over full of carbon as well. And so, um, the, our oceans are acidifying, uh, to the point where they're like dissolving the shells of small, um, shelled animals and, uh, and, you know, plankton, like this is <laughs> highly problematic. Yeah, so we have... Yeah. So we have too much carbon in the atmosphere. We have too much in the oceans. And then we have not enough in essentially the land, you know, in the earth, in the soil. And so what that means is the larger cycle itself is out of balance because everything in nature works in a cycle like this. And the way to, to solve that problem then is to look at the cycle itself and heal the part of the cycle that's out of whack. And in this instance, it's the, it's the harm that we're doing to the soil. It's also, of course, fossil fuels and emissions. Like that is, that's a major piece of it. And um, there's this huge piece around how we're treating the actual soil and the living soil and how that is a, a larger metaphor for all of our blind spots, these psychological blind spots and everything else that we're doing to life without honoring it. That's so, so incredible to kind of think about that from, from all those different angles. Like, you know, when you mentioned that the oceans were acidifying, I also hadn't thought that carbon in the ocean, you know, depriving it of oxygen and all these beings that need to breathe the oxygen and phytoplankton being a massive generator of oxygen and cleaning seas and providing, you know, food for the food chain and the ocean. So it's really, you know, not only just destructive, but actually going to disrupt whole ecosystems. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just wild to me. And I, I think, you know, when you talk about the forest floor and this sort of regenerative and cumulative, um, almost uterine lining like place that life is springing from. Uh, and then I also bring to mind this like stark contrast, which is our very finely manicured lawns and our, um, you know, square fields and the way that we're just trying to manage nature and and cut back on everything that nature is supposed to be and we're not letting things grow wild and we're trying to dictate where things need to grow maybe incorrectly um mm -hmm. so you know i don't know if you can kind of give us a little bit of some of the historical context that you've discovered in terms of you know you mentioned the patriarchy like how we as a society have taken over this ownership of land and how that's affected kind of where we are in this sort of, I would describe it like an asynchronous relationship with nature that's off kilter. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, like I said, I, I had my witchy moment and um, then sometime <laughs> in I'd say like 2017, I started to look into patriarchy because I was like, 
where did we, how did we get this far off? <laughs> you know, like, how is this even yeah. possible? Like, what is going on? And so I started to trace it back. And at, at the moment I've gotten, it, it's not a hundred percent clear. There's not like one, you know, scholar that's like, it's this, it's this exact thing. And this is the argument because it's the evolution of humanity. And it's, um, there's a mystery to it as well. And there's also a really obvious break in history, um, somewhere around like 5,000 years ago, where um, we started to come up with the idea of, of private property. Um, there are theories around shifts in agriculture, um, shifts in population, the written word it comes a little later. Um, but, but it is fascinating to look at human history as like hundreds of thousands of years rather than just a few thousand years, because there's a lot of human history there, you know, beyond 2000 years ago. And um, if you look at some of the, the ancient cultures that are, you know, 5,000 years ago, there's, there's so much there. And we just don't even think about that. Like, kind of. We're like, oh, yeah, the, the ruins of whatever. But we don't really think about how that affects our modern life. And um, so I started to, to dig into all of this stuff. And what I found was that these, the goddess, so if we're talking about the great divine feminine metaphor, we're talking about the soil, this ancient, this really simple, really ancient concept, um, fertility, birth, you know, birth, life, uh, death, rebirth, all of these themes run throughout all of human history. Um, what we had was essentially, we had like triple moon goddesses. So we had um, independent goddesses who were essentially the great cosmic mother and they were worshiped all over the world. And, uh, they like the triple moon, for example, is, is exactly that it's like life, death, rebirth, you know, that cycle. And of course it makes sense. If you think about that, if you think about humans living on the earth, uh, you know, growing food and having babies and worshiping this, um, incredible mother goddess that provides, you know, the, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So she was all over the world. And then somewhere also within that within that idea, nobody could own her. Right. She was the great goddess. And so um, we belonged essentially to her. We belonged to the land in honor and in reciprocity um, and in sacredness and not the other way around. Like the notion that we could own her, you know, own land. It like it doesn't make any any sense, but somewhere along the line we like the notion of private property came up. It's interesting because I I studied also affordable housing and I ran into the concept of private property because I was looking into the human right to housing and trying to figure out why humans could not solve this problem. Like how are we not able to house all the people? Like what is wrong with us? You know, that we can't sort this out. And it would always stop intellectually and philosophically at private property. There was no it was an impasse. There was no way around it. And um, of course, that's the foundation of you know, capitalism and <laughs> all like everything that, that, that we have in modern life. And when you go all the way back, that's also is the source of war, because once we start fighting over land, uh, we're fighting over resources, we're fighting over things, you know, um, because we believe that we can own them. And that's a really tricky, slippery spot for that ego. So I talk in my book about, you know, the role of the ego and um, when we remember our, our souls inside of ourselves, our soul beings, um, we can have this greater perspective of being one with, with everything, being one with all things, realizing that we're part of these grand cycles of whatever and the great mystery. And we can study it and we can on some level also never know, you know, um, that that's our yeah. sort of soul knowing. But then the ego is like, no, that's mine. Like <laughs> this person, you know, this thing, this, this piece of land, I can own that. That's a thing. And, and it's a concept. 
Um, but when a collective starts to agree upon that and different collectives start to, they can also fight. And there's actually a thread um, that brings us to where we are now in terms of slavery, like the notion that we can own other humans, that anybody could ever own other humans. It's completely absurd, you know, when you look at it. But yeah. when when that ego, you know, gets around and um, takes over, essentially, in on a collective level, it becomes like a collective hallucination, essentially. And so, so that's sort of where storytelling comes in, is that when you go from the great, let's call them the great myths of the great goddess, um, when people were taking over, when like tribes were taking over other tribes or whatever, um, what people would do was start to rewrite myths because, because spirituality was such a central part of all of human life. Um, if you could take over people's gods and goddesses or whatever was going on, um, you could take, it's essentially mind control. Like you could take over their land and then you could take them over. And that's where like rape becomes, you know, a part of war. Like all of these things enter in this conversation of, of ownership and of takeover. Um, and again, it happened in different places around the world at around the same time. So there's not an exact, you know, there's, there's not an exact like quote unquote reason why, but, um, still the theme of takeover and ego and, uh, and essentially the, the birth of patriarchy then makes its way into like the Abrahamic religions and the, the notion of one male God. And then, the complete takeover, like the complete, um, essentially the destruction of the goddess or the suppression of the goddess, which runs us all the way for the last, let's say 2000 years, all the way up to the present day and makes complete sense. Like if you're taking a larger view of history, 2000, 3000 years is not that long. And what we've been doing is telling the wrong story <laughs> for a very long yeah. time. And so, um, these, the, the destruction of the mother goddess, the suppression of, um, the feminine cycle is also feminine sexuality. So we cut out, like humans, cut out um, our connection to sexuality and particularly uh, the feminine, the divine feminine connection between sexuality, childbirth and childbearing. So you'll see that, you know, the destruction of the mother archetype as it stands now. And like, we have a very damaged mother archetype already. Like when a woman gives birth, um, like her sexuality is gone, you know, or something like that. There's definitely that sort of story running somewhere in the patriarchal level of our of our collective psyche and our society. If you look at how um, reproductive rights are handled in policy, you know, <laughs> like the fact that yeah. we're fighting about any of this stuff. And there's another thread about, I mean, this is a whole nother podcast, but our divine connection to our sexuality. <laughs> and um, if you go into like the, you know, the tantric, um, disciplines. Uh, it basically, it's all about our, our sexual energy is our connection to the divine that we have these channels within our bodies. And this also will take us into, um, the, sh the chakra system and, um, how we manage our own energy and our own power and our boundaries within our bodies. All of this stuff got destroyed at different times. And if you talk about witches, um, very specifically like our throat chakra, you know, and truth, like we had our throat slit. We had, we were hanged, you know, and, and slavery is a piece of that, all of that violence and suppression, um, again, rape as a as a part of war um, was basically a takeover of our sovereign spiritual selves. And the whole the whole point of my book is to help return our our memory, our you know our memory, so that we can tell 
a better story. Because as soon as we start telling a better story and a set of better stories to ourselves as individuals, we, we start to heal. And we can do that as a collective as well. And so part of my point is that all of this is interconnected, all of it. And all of these things seem so far apart from each other. But like you can take <laughs> um, patriarchy straight to capitalism, straight to climate change, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, it's all really obviously connected once you start to see um, you know, how humans relate to nature and how interconnected we are and how uh, important it is that we remember who we are in a spiritual and natural context. That idea of suppression and retelling of stories, you know, in order to obfuscate or to, um, you know, villainize things that would obscure your ability to actually take power or to take over, um, also kind of bleeds into areas that, you know, maybe they have the best intentions, but they're too human centric. So my criticism of, of Buddhism would be that it's so concerned with the human salvation and leaving these cycles of rebirth and being able to free yourself of this cyclical existence that they'll do anything to stop those sort of, um, you were saying sort of like the tantric, like uh, sexuality and like they don't want anyone having sex over there <laughs> like if right. you're a monk or a right. nun. So it's like, you know, there's an argument that that is helping you not be too attached to the bad things that motivate humans in our modern society. But you also could see it as a way that you're not even accepting that this cycle happens and you're not yeah. breathing and working with nature because nature is a cycle. You're actually mm -hmm. trying to, in a way, break free of that. So, you know, for whatever motivation, good or bad, I think we have t retold ourselves this narrative that humans, this, it goes back to that ego thing, right? That we're the most important species or we're the highest on the food chain. And so we need to cultivate this power and we, we are the ones deserving of breaking free of the cycle or whatever it is. And it's, it's just kind of crazy to me because I, I just mm -hmm. see us running as fast as possible into a brick wall <laughs> that brick wall being yeah. massive climate change and mm. you know we're living through this global pandemic and there's a pandemic every hundred years or so that's wiping people out and clearly what we're doing is not sustainable the way we're living it close together in cities is not a good idea and like it's just hard to kind of break out of that system when it's so ingrained in going back to kind of your roots, like in the way we've planned cities and in the way we've planned mm. towns and how we as a culture are actually structured um, to have like in the UK class systems and things. People say mm. class, systems, class systems are dead. Well, they're not. And they're actually mm. based on private property ownership and lords and ladies yeah. and all these things kind of going back hundreds and hundreds of years to when these were set into motion. And we as modern day people are still living in those very antiquated ways without a way out, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the why I'm so thrilled and excited about the stuff that you've written about and Grounded and can't wait for people to read it because I, I really feel like the the way that we make progress is to try to go back to nature and say, okay, we were meant to live in this certain type of a cycle or we were meant to um, live alongside and with nature and not fight against it and not try to manicure it and make it do our bidding. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to kind of 
to talk through that. Um, I guess that brings us to my last question. Um, I like to to ask guests the, the most impossible question, which is uh, <laughs> how do you think in terms of being able to do something in our everyday lives that might help protect or set us in a better motion to actually solve some of these issues, um, you know, if you could name one thing that our listeners could consider trying to do, what do you think we should be doing to try to address some of these issues? Yeah, um, actually, I, I write a lot about that. I, I'd say the basic umbrella answer is to start to live what I would call a regenerative life. Um, and that is an umbrella answer. So it's kind of cheating because there's a lot of stuff inside of that. But um, Be more chill. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the um, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the regenerative agriculture movement, um, this Kiss the Ground actually has been a big piece of the growth of this movement since 2013. Um, Now the movement itself has become central in the climate change conversation because again, it's this this primary sort of set of solutions that are actionable. Um, We actually can change our relationship with agriculture in in very significant ways. Um, While we can change all of these other things about, you know, how we drive our cars and things, but they're all sort of small in comparison. That this is like a really big one. This is kind of kind of low hanging fruit. Um, and again, it's not just it's not just agriculture. It's also deforestation and things like this, where we can change the way we do these things if we just were to understand quite what we were doing, you know, and what the what the harm we were doing, you know, was was leading to. And uh, so the concept of regenerative agriculture is focusing on the soil, focusing on um, healing the soil in whatever context this is. Could be grasslands. Could be you know agriculture, it could be forests, et cetera. And, um, and in that sense, aligning, aligning with nature. So um, the notion of a regenerative cycle is one that continues in more and more abundance, like greater and greater abundance. So I use this example in my book of like a, like a basil plant um, sprouts so many seeds or any plant, tomato plant, you know, you've got your tomato and you have all these seeds. So you have one little plant and then it just, you could make lots and lots and lots of more plants from this one plant and it's free. <laughs> it just comes straight out of the <laughs> earth. And this is how nature, this is how nature does, you know, this is, this is how she flows. And um, so recognizing that first of all then honoring that and working with the systems that actually help perpetuate that cycle because that that is where we all thrive we thrive within that system as well um as opposed to sort of the food shortage you know climate change idea so we head towards like regenerative agriculture that's the model um you know, the soil aligning with nature. And then you think about leading a regenerative life as an individual. So it's like, what would it look like to align with nature ourselves? And I talk about a few simple things. Um, One thing I just wanted to touch on was that that focus on the lower chakras. So we have, we're talking about the root and then also the sacral. So the root of course is um, connection to the earth, obviously, and our roots in and our, it's also our sense of home, tribe, identity. um, And all of that stuff is obviously coming up right now in society or like slavery, the genocide of um, indigenous peoples all over the world is, is a disconnection of humans from their land from their, you know, not their Mm -hmm. land, but like wherever they lived, um, that whatever sacred connection they had with their home, that was violently broken on purpose. And that connection, um, to our, our lower chakras was, was violently written out and, and then, and then, 
backed up with with actual physical violence. Um, so when we're talking about those like monotheistic religions with like the one male god in the sky, that was where those lower chakras were cut out of the story, where it was like um, no spirituality is up in the sky. It's up at the top three, you know. And so long as we think that the material is base in a in a derogatory way, and we think that nature is against us because we're anti-goddess, even though we don't realize that, but that's been programmed into us. Um, and that like we literally have rape stories at the basis of like in, in Greek culture, like Zeus was written in um, as like a rapist husband. Oh God, he was uh, the worst. Yeah, right. And I'm like, why did I never question this? I knew that, you know, they teach us this in freaking school, you know, and I'm like, oh my God. They turned into a bull and just accosted women yeah. in the fields. Totally. This is, I know. And we're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. We're like, no, it doesn't. Like that's the basis of, of our, of Western culture, you know, the fundamental marriage story that got rewritten, that is a co-optation of Hera, who was an indigenous Greek goddess, a triple moon goddess, um, who was worshipped as nature before Zeus. You know, we like see how this all goes together. Um, you know, our, our foundational story of coupledom is a rape story. And we're like, where do you think that's going to take us? Especially if she represents mm -hmm. the earth. Like, of course we're raping the earth. Of course we are, you know, of course we mine, dig it and blow off mountaintops, you know, think that's a fine idea. So we're like, okay, so part of that is that these stories matter, <laughs> you know, at least like, even if you just, it, it, like some, the people who are averse to woo and like the chakra system and whatever, um, if you just think of them as archetypes, you know, and if you think of all of this stuff, even the history is just as archetypes, archetypes are incredibly powerful and, um, all of marketing and advertising works off of archetypes. So we are, you know, storytelling in general, like these things affect us far more deeply psychologically than we realize. And so um, this is a, probably a much deeper answer <laughs> you're asking for, but I'm loving it. I'm, I'm living in for this. <laughs> Um, but one is just to live a regenerative life. We have to remember that one, like just, just open your eyes, you know, to archetypes and the power of myth and recognize that we have been running some really shit stories for a while and that to, to reclaim our lives and to reclaim our society and our world, the way we want to see it, to reclaim a regenerative society, um, we get to rewrite that. And so beginning with just remembering your own root, you know, remembering your own sacral chakra, remembering that your sexuality is sacred, like that just, just in theory, <laughs> you know, just, just finding out that they exist, you know, is a huge step. And yeah. then from there, it's like, then like really gentle meditation. So final answer, like, small things like grow a few plants from seed in your house or not even from seed, like buy a plant at the store, you know, practice, like grow a little thing in your house and, and start meditating. So work on the inner in your body and then do something in the outer, you know, that, that, that reflects alignment with nature and with the goddess archetype. Or if you want to go all the way, like full goddess, like pray to the goddess, you know? <laughs> whatever, whatever suits you. But like in just aligning your little pieces of your life towards nature and being like, okay, all we need to do is align our intention and take small actions and the bigger actions will come. But the alignment is the key point. 
right? Like we have to get that first, we have to get that foundation set because right now it's just, we're seeing everything fall apart because our castles are built on sand. Like this was never going to stand. And it's also part of the beauty of nature. She's like, you know what? I'm actually in charge. <laughs> you can tell whatever stories you want, but like we, <laughs> you answer to this. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's just then, yeah, just envisioning what a regenerative life and a regenerative world might be. I would say that. I love it. And also, <laughs> thank you for basically doing an advertisement for Kodharma with your answer, which is to find <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to find some part of nature and to try to reconnect with it and, and notice new things and, and do that mindful meditation. So awesome on brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Amazing. So uh, I just want to finish by saying thank you so much, Erin. It's been such a pleasure to speak to you. I hope we get to have you back sometime next year around the time of your book and we can maybe talk in more detail because I feel like we only just scratched the surface of some of this stuff. It's really, really cool. Oh, absolutely. Such a pleasure. I'm so glad we found each other and uh, really looking forward to the next time. That was Dr. Erin McMorrow, and I want to just thank her again for joining us on the podcast today. I think it's appropriate to close today's podcast with a mountain meditation. Uh, I will do a shorter version of this practice, uh, but I find it's really useful for digging in those roots and really getting grounded. So I think it's, um, it's highly appropriate for today. So if you want to take a seat or even stand for this meditation, um, even lying down, find yourself in a comfortable posture and start to settle in. If you notice that your mind is racing or your physical sensations are very present. See if you can focus down into the belly, into the breath. Concentrate on that ebb and flow, one breath at a time. Concentrate on the gravity, the pull of gravity on your sitting bones or your feet, wherever you're making contact with the ground. Really feel the weight, the weight distribution across the body. Feel the ground supporting you, pushing up. As you start to really feel this sense of centering, bring to mind a mountain. It could be a mountain you know well, a mountain you've only seen photos of, but sticks in your mind. Maybe it's an imaginary mountain. While you're looking at your mountain, notice its features. 
Is it smooth and sloping? Or rugged? Sharp? Does it have a noticeable tree line? Rocky edges? Is it snow-capped or is it springtime? Or maybe it's so high it's always covered in glacial ice, no matter the time of year. Can you hear sounds of a waterfall or a stream or maybe a river pouring off of the mountain as the water makes its way back to the ground? Or maybe you hear wind blowing through the trees and whistling through the canyons. Is it blue sky and sunny? Or is it foggy and mysterious? As you notice these things about your mountain, start to breathe with the mountain. See if you can bring that mountain into your breath, into your body, and become the mountain. That center of gravity that you noticed earlier, that weight, that presence, that becomes the base of the mountain. And as you stretch tall through your spine and your neck, or as you lay supine like a mountain range, feel the top of your body that's pointing to the sky reach up like the point of a mountain. Mountains are immovable, sturdy, present, patient. And as you breathe as the mountain, feel a sense of majesty and presence to your posture. Just as spring turns to summer and fall into winter, so the seasons change around us. One day we may feel covered in snow or thunderstorms. Some days it may be springtime and blossoms may appear. And just like a mountain, with calm, patience, mindful observance, we can weather any storm. We can get grounded. As we bring our practice to a close, take a few more breaths as mountain. And if you can, take this extra sense of presence and gravity into the next part of your day. Thank you for joining the Kodharma community and listening to the Trade Winds podcast. 
We'll see you next time. Namaste.